you can take your Bibles and you can turn to Psalm 95. I told you last week that we were going to wrap up the life of David this week, um, but I decided not to do that because, um, and I think I've said this the last couple of weeks, that I decided I was going to wrap it up, but decided not to um, because so, there's like something else that I wanted to talk about. And, um, and so this thing sort of came out as, as a, a theme. I think, that we, I think that I would be amiss as a teacher if we didn't take a Sunday and talk about the Psalms um, because David was so um, instrumental in, uh, in God um, using him to craft most of the Psalms that, that we engage in the Scriptures. And uh, so I want to talk about the Psalms today. Um, I want to talk about them from uh, uh, a little different vantage point and understand who it is that um, God has made us to be and how it is that he would have us in, engage the Psalms together um, and the concept of, of worship, period, and, and what that looks like. So that's what we're going to be talking about today. Um, just begin to think, begin to think, and I'm going to give you a little, little time to think um, instead of asking you to think and then talking so you get to think about that too. Um, uh, think about a psalm in your life. Like, like, is there a point in time in your history where God used a psalm to minister to you? Um, is there a point in your story where God used a psalm to, to, uh, to challenge you or to heal you or to, um, to just comfort you? Or is there a psalm that God used to offer him praise? Um, so uh, think about that for a little bit. I'm going to pray, and then we'll leave a little bit of space for that, and then we'll, we'll head into our teaching. God, thanks for this morning. Thanks for um, who you are and who we are in you. Uh, we believe, God, that you have uh, rich and deep and good things for, our, uh, for your people, for our lives. And we want to understand those things in you. Um, so be it leadership or be it sexuality or be it uh, our corporate worship this morning before you and our time of teaching in your word and uh, singing together, any of those things. We, we want to more fully understand who you are and more fully grasp you and your heart and your mind and your ways. So God, come into this space, into this place, and open us up to you um, and open us up to your words. Uh, we believe, God, that you are real and that you are active and that you are here. So um, we, we rest in you during this time. Even now as we meditate and think about our own stories, like where we've come from or um, how we praise you through a psalm or or how you ministered and served us through a psalm, how you spoke comfort or challenge. Um, even as we reflect on this and the psalms work in our life, God, um, you know, again, reveal these things to us in the name of Jesus. God, thank you for these memories, or these stories, these points of extreme extravagant praise and our points of just deep despair, of our sorrow where you have found us and comforted us and the high points of our life where we celebrate the beauty of your goodness and we see it so clearly. God, walk with us again through these psalms, through these your songs and teach us what it means to know you through them. We bless you, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. So in order to understand the psalms, um, you have to, you got to understand what it is you're working with, right? I mean, uh, the psalms were written, a lot of them were written by David, a lot of them were written by Asaph, some, a couple of them were written by Moses, um, some other smatterings here and there of some other names that you may or may not recognize. Um, but when we think about the Psalms, uh, the majority of them were written by David, who we've been studying for the last two years, right? So we've been getting to know this guy and really understand who he is. And when you read David's Psalms, having just engaged his life in a really deep and meaningful way, 
you can really begin to make some connections between the man and the music, right? Which is also pretty true if you're at all into music as well. Like, anybody here have a favorite band? Anybody here have a favorite band? Or a favorite musical group or a favorite musical type? You know, um, I mean, if you're, if you're into music, you generally enjoy knowing as much about the artist as you do about um, the music itself. You know, like, my favorite band of all time is R.E.M., and I know a heck of a lot about Michael Stipe for no good reason other than the fact that he's a lead singer of R.E.M., right? And uh, so it's like that kind of a thing. I'm a big U2 fan. I know a lot about Bono and U2's story for no good reason other than that they write some incredible music, you know? I've been getting into Neil Young. Right now in my own life, I'm reading Neil Young's biography, autobiography, thanks to Ben Bernard, you know? Um, and... Uh, uh, Fantastic stuff, you know, but Jay, there's no Christian artists in there. Read my blog. All right, <laughs> move on. Um, okay, so the Psalms, when we think about the Psalms, the Psalms are the worship book of Israel. They were penned and written long before they were ever put together in an order. All right, these things would have been ordered probably around like 300 B.C. They would have been penned, they would have been written all from 5,000 all the way down through, uh, through when they were actually put in order around 300. So um, these things are written over a massive amount of time, and they're all contained within the historical context of the nation of Israel, the Jewish people, the nation that God looked at out of all the nations in the world and said, you, I'm going to choose you, just like he does with us, right? You, I'm going to choose you. I'm going to pour out my blessing and love on you. Um, and so this... The, the, the Psalms, it's, it's important for you to understand you're working with a song book, right? You're, you're working with a, a, a worship book. Um, so that being said, I think it's important to acknowledge and understand worship before we move further in, into the Psalms. So a, as we think about um, worship and what worship is, um, the Psalms teach us as much about what worship is um, as any place else that we find ourselves in, in the Scriptures, um, so it's important to understand this. It's important to understand that the purpose of individual intimate worship is to enable and empower corporate worship. This is a big deal, right? This simple statement up on the screen is, is a big deal. It is not enough for you to love God on your own, disconnected from his people, floating off out there somewhere. Personal, intimate worship with Christ is very important, but it is made for the purpose of engaging something bigger than you. This is a massive affront to what it means to be an American Christian. You are absolutely right. This is, you have no rights in this situation. Yep. There is nothing that you can bring to this and be like, no, this piece of worship is mine. This thing's mine. This thing's mine. And this is just me and Jesus, and we sit here. And No, that's called Christian narcissism, and that'll lead you down some really bad paths. The whole point of your own worship experiences with God is to inform and engage the greater worship experience with God and his people. Just think about the basic picture of Scripture. Corporate worship is the point. The end of all things is all tribes, all nations, all languages before the throne of God. That is the idea. That is happening right now in heaven. That is happening right now on earth. Literally, though, like right now, now. Do you know how many people around the world right now are worshiping God right now? 
right? I mean, we are joining literally all tribes, all nations, all tongues outside of ourselves. We are part of something bigger. Intimate personal worship is for the purpose of intimate corporate worship. Psalm 95. Look at the pronouns. O come, let us worship. Let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our God, our maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. And at this point in the psalm, the voice changes. And now God begins talking with this, at this word today. Okay, now this is God talking now. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. The judgment against God's people when they wandered in the desert for 40 years was because they chose to worship independently of God and independently of one another. You ever think about that? The judgment that the people of God experienced that caused them to wander in the wilderness all those years was because they chose against a true corporate worship of God, birthed for God and through God and who he is. Right? Psalm 95 stands as this two-parted thing. There is this grand thing that we all should be together shooting for. Let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our God, our maker, because he's worthy of us. 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 Not me. Us. If you go independent, if you choose to worship God on your own, well, you've got a history to look at for that. That's why these folks wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. You know, so, so it's very important to understand that, that the nature of worship is for the p- purpose of corporate worship. It is about the people of God coming together. And certainly that happens in what we would call a church service. But, but it happens in so many other places. Hopefully it happens uh, around your, your, your table. Right? Hopefully the worship is happening when you're together as a family. Hope that, hopefully worship is happening when you're together with good friends. And, and you are engaging one another with God, right? You are corporately putting God at the center and being about Him. You know, there, there are so many ways that corporate worship is meant to function. But individual worship is for the purpose of empowering and enabling corporate worship. This is about ministry and worship with other people. Us doing it on our own is not enough. It's not enough. This is about us together, right? There's a movement in the American church nowadays um, over the last few years that is against corporate worship that says, I don't need that to love God. God's not going to love me if I don't go to church. I couldn't uh, agree more. God, God's not going to stop loving you if you don't go to church. Absolutely. But you are missing out on what it means to be a part of the people of God. Like you're missing one of the key points of your identity if you choose to live your life like that. Um, you know, but sermons are boring, and uh, I don't like singing, and, you know, and I don't like people, um, you know, so I, I don't do those things. Well, all of those things are, are pretty stinking important in the scriptures. 
So if there's something that's off, it might be you. Because it's not the text. So we, we need to think about that. We need to think about why we do what we do and, and how we do what we do and the attitude and perspective that we bring to it. Th- th- this, the whole point of corporate worship is that, is that it's not about what we like. Right? Uh, uh, um, you know, when somebody tells me they liked my sermon, I don't know what to do with that. So I generally say, thank you, unless I was trying to offend them, and then I'm like, darn it, I missed it because they liked it. You know, so... Like, there's this, it's, it's an interesting place. I, I liked worship today. I don't know what that means. I don't know what to do with that. Um, because Lamentations is also worship, and I sure as heck don't like that book. Right? I mean, parents eating their children because they're under siege. This is put into a song that they sing. Wild stuff, right? So it, I, I think the reason why worship and corporate worship gets so... Um, consumerized and consumed wrongly is because we come to it with the wrong perspective. This is not about me. This is about we. This is not about me. This, this is about we. This is about us together. So yes, there will probably be some things that you don't like. Again, not the point. There will probably be some things that you'd like very much. Again, not the point. What is the point? The point is that the people of God are coming together to minister to the Lord the way that he instructs us to. So that's that. All right. That's worship. <laughs> that's not all worship. That's a, that's a starting point. <laughs> that's it. You know? Yeah, you're good to go now. All right. Um, I, I want to be sure to give credit where credit is due. A lot of the stuff that I get today comes from this dude. Uh, his name is N.T. Wright, Bishop of Durham, uh, Anglican Church in England. Uh, he is... Today's C.S. Lewis, like when we look back at N.T. Wright's writings 100 years from now, they're going to be like, wow, C.S. Lewis reincarnation is real. Okay, um, I don't really think that. Um, this book is just, the case for the Psalms just blew my mind. And frankly, it probably is the reason why I'm bringing this teaching today, because N.T. Wright has blown my mind. Best book about worship that I've, that I've ever read, and as a pastor, you read a lot of them. Um, so if you read one book about worship, I would encourage you to read The Case for the Psalms by N.T. Wright, where he just offers all kinds of, the whole book is chock full of stuff like this. Um, when humans take up their divinely appointed role, looking after God's world on his behalf, this is not some Promethean attempt to usurp God's role. Like, that, that's a big thought process right there, right? That human role on earth is to take care of God's world on his behalf. Now, that's quite a statement that he's making there. Uh, it is the humble, obedient carrying out of the role that has been assigned. The real arrogance would be to refuse the vocation, imagining that we know better than God the purpose for which we have been put here. I also put an extensive quote from his book on the back of your bulletin, which you can read now or later or never. It's up to you. Um, so, but a lot of the thoughts that I get today come from N.T. Wright, and I'm not going to keep saying that over and over and over again. I'm telling you now. Next, bubble. All right, so let's talk about the Psalms for a little bit. Let's talk about the Psalms. When it comes to the Psalms and how you and I engage and understand the Psalms, what you have to understand in coming to the Psalms is that the Psalms were not written by Americans. The Psalms were not written by Americans. The Psalms were not written by Western Christians at all. The Psalms were written by an ancient Eastern thinking people who valued, literally, what I'm about to say is not an overstatement, who valued poetry as the highest art form. 
okay? So the Jews, the Jewish people, and understanding poetry in the Hebrew mindsets, si- mindset puts the Psalms into a deeper perspective, right? You know that these things are songs, right? Have you ever tried to sing a psalm? I mean, just like open the Bible and sing one. It doesn't give you a lot of help, right? There's no notes, or it says, you know, tongue, sung, to the, sung to the tune of the ascent to Jerusalem, and you're just supposed to, like, know that. Oh, yeah, yeah, didn't REM cover that in 1998? Um, you know, like, so uh, in understanding the, the, the Hebrew mindset, it's important to understand poetry is at the center heart. Like, like all of the intellectual thought, and, the, and people all around the world are intelligent, Everybody's got the same basic brain that works the same basic way. It's just the way we approach our thought processes are very different. So the people of God sort of like, they, they, the, the Jewish term would be midrash, right? So if Jake and I were ancient Jewish people, we would midrash the scriptures together, right? And so I would say to Jake, so Jake, what do you th- think that the Torah means when the Torah says, or, or why would the Torah say that um, uh, you have to cleanse your hands after touching a dead animal when you're not in the camp, right? And Jake would hash this back. Like Jake would think about that, and he would give me a reason why he thinks that, that God would say that. And then I would give him a reason why I think that God would say that. Then he would extrapolate his reason further, and I would extrapolate my further. Now, you might think this is arguing. No, that's American, The goal in this is not to win. The goal in this is not for one of our ideas to trump another. The goal in the Jewish Midrash is for us to just sort of throw a bunch of thoughts out there about God. And as we throw a bunch of thoughts out there about God and what he's told us to do and how he's told us to be, this is called Midrashing. It it, it really means sort of like to chew and to step on. And so we're like, we're we're in this now. We're in this now. The, The way that and so this would happen all the time. This was just Jewish life, right? The, the, the law, the midrash, was just the, the central point of how we would talk about God. But the goal is in the midst of this whirlwind of midrash for beauty to float to the top. And whatever it is that comes up out here is put into a song. And that poetry is based on all of this thought process and thinking and talking and speaking together about God. And the poem swirls in there and finds its way out. And when it finds its way out, that's the pinnacle. Right? And that's when, like the, like the songwriters of Israel were highly esteemed. Did you ever think about how David ended his life? We looked at this a few weeks ago. David calls himself not the great warrior of Israel, although he was. He calls himself the sweet psalm writer. Like that's his greatest triumph. That's his greatest title, is that He's able to take this whirlwind and bring out these beautiful things about who God is. Understanding that this is the highest form is is very important. The poetry of the Psalms uses the same basic concepts that you and I do, right? Um, When when we talk and use use colorful uh, language, and I don't mean, you know, like it might have just sounded like I said, um, uh, but, you know, like basic stuff, simile and and metaphor, you know, and so understanding that, uh, you know, the, uh, you know, like and, and as statements. Um, my wife looks like an angel sitting back there. Right? Yeah, pretty good, huh? All right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. I, I'm no dummy. Um, 
Anthropomorphism. So you give uh, the trees of the field will clap their hands. Well, trees don't have hands, and they, ha they, don't, they don't clap. Anthropomorphism, right? So you take something that's not alive, and you give it human object, things to attach to it, right? They would use that. Um, symbolism, repetition, imagery, all of these things that we would also use in our poetry are certainly in there. But the two things that make Hebrew poetry most Hebrew are not at all familiar to Americans or a Western mindset, right? And these two things are parallelism and chiism. All right, parallelism and chiism. Uh, if you got your text, we're going to be in the Psalms today. So just stick in the Psalms there. Um, turn back to chapter uh, 33, verse 6. So I can show you some of these things. This is parallelism. Psalm 33, 6. By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their hosts. That, those are two parallel statements. Right? The, Psalms, the Psalms triumph in this concept. The Psalms say one thing, and then say that same thing just a little differently, just to give it another nuance to it. And then from that parallelism, it'll then begin to swirl, and it'll begin to speak and talk, and pretty soon you'll find yourself in another parallel thought. Turn back to 78, Psalm 78. Verse 1. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old. That's parallelism in verse 2. Right? It's, it's the same thought spoken two different ways. Right? Same thought spoken two different ways. Uh, flip back to 139. Just see it again. Verse 3. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Right? Two parallel thoughts. And then you can have massive sets of parallelism, sort of like all strung together. Like when Psalm 19 says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing in the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Right? Parallel, 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 parallel. It's just it's happening over and over and over and over again. Saying pretty much the same thing in nuanced and different ways. That's because the Jewish people, the Hebrew people, believe that you could never find enough about God. Like there would always be more to say about God. So when you make one statement about God, it is never good enough to make just one. You better make another one and another one and another one and keep saying it and say this differently than you said this differently. And if you don't have words to think about it differently, then you better invent words to think about it differently because he's that big. Like he's that great. And all of this swirl of intellectual thought, we've got to find a way to bring this out in a beautiful format on some way or another because God happens to be beautiful. So as I walk in and through this and engage all of this stuff, that means that I am engaging God more and more as I speak who he is this way. And then, heck, I'll even say the same thing again, just a little different. And then I'll think and talk about that for a while. Then I'll make another statement. And then think about it just a little different again. Did you ever notice Genesis 1 and 2? We try and read Genesis 1 and 2 and 3 chronologically. It doesn't work, right? You read Genesis 1, and all the days of creation are lined out for you. And it ends with the creation of humans. Genesis 2... Starts with the creation of humans, which he just told us about. And so if you try and read it chronologically, 
Genesis 1 to 2, you end up having to make all kinds of weird, like, ends with the text that don't belong there. Very bad hermeneutics. If you understand Hebrew parallelism and read the Genesis story as though it might be poetry on many levels, because it certainly reads like it, Genesis 1 says the creation account one way, and Genesis 2 says it another way. Right? Parallel. It's a parallel. It's a parallel. And understanding this is, is, is very important to understanding who God is and the way he expresses himself through this poetry thing. Chiism, we've talked about this before, uh, chiism is about making the emphasis on the right thing. Um, go back to Psalm 95. I'll show you just one chiastic phrase. In his hand, are the, this is verse 4 and 5, in his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it. His hands form the dry land. All right? First phrase, in his hand are the depths of the earth. Second phrase, the heights of the mountain also are his. So now we're talking about what belongs to God. So here's now a parallel phrase. The sea is his, for he made it. And then back to the hands, and his hands formed the dry land. That's chiastic structure. This puts the emphasis where it belongs, which in this case is not about God forming things. In his hands are the depths of the earth, right? The heights of the mountains are his also. Parallel phrase, what also belongs to God? The seas belong to God, for he made it, and his hands form the dry land. All right, so this structure, whatever is most over here is the point. The point is that God owns all of these things, that they are his, that they belong to him. Right, the Hebrew people are not concerned about rhyming. There were no rappers in Israel. Right, this was about trying to find new and deep and better ways to express fullness of who God is. That's the poetry of the Psalms. Did I just go past that? I didn't mean to do that. It's also to remember that these are songs. Right? It's important to remember that these are songs. These these are songs, so there is an emotive quality to them. Do you remember 2 Kings 3? Elisha is trying to hear from God, and he can't hear from God because he's in the presence of, in his mind, such a big idiot. And this guy is such a stinking buffoon that he has literally cut off Elisha's ability in his own head to clearly hear from God. So, so in 2 Kings 3, get down to verse 15, Elisha says this, Bring me a harpist so that I can hear from God. Br bring me a harpist to play. And when the music plays, it opens up a door for Elisha to hear from God. Right? These are songs. These are songs. They are meant to be sung. They were written to be sung. This is about music engaging the people of God. God loves music. In his presence all the time is a song. The lyrics are very simple. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. That's it. He hears that all the time on constant replay, punctuated by other great things that his shuffle randomly goes to. Um, and his shuffle is his people. 
right, who sing his songs to him. We are God's iPod um, as he hears the songs of himself coming back to him from his people. And in the meantime, there's this constant chorus of the holiness of God and who he is. Just so cool. These are songs. These are songs. Understanding the concepts in the Psalms and engaging the Psalms is, is really important. Uh, quick, Christians, Christians, we are very quick to invite the Psalms to enter our world, right? Christians are quick to invite the Psalms to enter their world, but we lose perspective so, so easily. This is what we tend to do with the Psalms. We tend to wait until we need them. When it comes to the Psalms, we tend to wait until we need them. We tend to wait until something's happening that we need something like, to hear from God on, and we go to the Psalms when we need, when we need comfort or when we want to praise or when we're in a bad situation or when someone's coming against us, we go to the Psalms. And, and we, we say to the Psalms, come into my world and help me. So we, we are very quick to invite the Psalms into our world. But I think that the point of the Psalms, I think that the whole idea behind the Psalms is why would we ask the Psalms to enter our world when in actuality they are asking us to enter theirs? Right, the Psalms invite you to a place that is not where you are. And what we tend to do is look at ourselves and go, oh, I need something from God. The Psalms are pretty accessible when it comes to that. And we go to the Psalms and we say, help me. Generally, help me feel better about what it is that I'm feeling bad about, whatever that might be. And so they speak to us. And they're meant to minister in that way. It's not that, I'm not saying that's bad. I'm saying that if you really want to understand the Psalms, that you have to go into their world, not invite them into yours. You might be saying, how do I do that? Well, remember that point of meditation that we had at the beginning? Like, what's a Psalm that speaks to you? Like, think back to that. Think back to that. However the psalm at that point in time spoke to your heart or met you in the space that you were in, however you invited it to engage you, like receive that as a gift from God. That's a good and beautiful thing. But think again about that experience. What was the psalm inviting you into? Let me tell you what I mean by this. I can remember the first time, like it was yesterday, I can remember the first time that the psalm, that, that a psalm actually spoke to me. It's one of the first times that I feel like I ever actually had any kind of like a real connection with God actually was, was through a psalm. And um, it was at a point of really high pain in, in my life. I was in the eighth grade at this point in time. I've told some of you this story before. I was in the eighth grade at this time and I had an eighth grade girlfriend, you know, which meant that we like didn't talk to each other. And, uh, you know, randomly passed notes here and there. Um, right? I had this girlfriend. Anyway, uh, she, she was actually a, a really good friend uh, a, as well. I think we actually did have conversations probably prior to going out. Um, but whatever. Uh, she ended up getting cancer. And uh, she, um, it, it, was, it was very advanced. It was a very extreme form of cancer. Um, and it moved very, very quickly. She was diagnosed in November, and she died in March. Like, that's how fast it moved. Um, so I'm 14 at the time, and, and this girl was just, uh, she had a really alive relationship with God. And, um, and uh, I mean, God truly sustained her and her family through this experience. 
um, I'm an eighth grade boy at this time, you know, struggling with typical things like acne and uh, wondering if I'm going to be on the starting lineup this game. You know what I mean? Like that kind of stuff are my great concerns in life. And then this thing sort of like comes out of nowhere and, and really, really sent me for a loop. And um, I didn't quite know what to do with it, as you can imagine. Uh, heck, I'm 36 and I still don't know what to do with parts of it. Um, so I remember the first time a psalm ministered to me was at Christmas of that year, right? Because um, her, her name was Jen, by the way. Um, Jen, for Christmas, got me a gift. The gift that she got me was a Bible. Um, it was this really beautiful, leather-bound, black King James Bible. Um, I still have it. I still use it. It's my funeral and wedding Bible. And um, in the, in the uh, like, where you sign, like, to and from, to Jay, from Jen, and then it said, in, right underneath it, it said Psalm 4610, right? And uh, so, I mean, she put it there for a reason. So I looked up Psalm 4610. Psalm 4610 says, be still and know that I am God, right? And I can remember, like, that psalm finding me and, like, just reaching out and grasping that uh, there is another place that I could go rather than the confusion of my 14-year-old mind trying to wrap around this life and death concept that was so visibly there, you know? And uh, I remember being with uh, my best friend, Tim, still currently my best friend, uh, the night that she died. And uh, um, Tim went to Psalm 46. He didn't know anything about what she had written. Tim went to Psalm 46 and, and read this thing to me. And, and there was verse 10, be still and know that I am God. And I was, it, it was just, it was so poignant again. And, and as I've thought about it, I, I realized that what God was inviting me into through Psalm 46 what was, I mean, did Psalm 46 offer me peace and quiet in a place of confusion and noise? Yeah, absolutely. But it offered me something else. It offered me a doorway into God's, into who God was. Like, oh, this is who God is. God's not this God of confusion and insanity and just death upon death, right? God's, God, God didn't make the world with ambulances and, and hospitals and graveyards in it, right? He, he, that was never his intention. He made the world with beauty and wholeness and peace and rest. And here Psalm 46 is inviting this confused kid and then later on this confused man <laughs> into this same place. Like, I can go to that place with him because the Psalms say, come over here and think about it like this. Engage it like this. Experience God like this. God's happy to bring it to me. Absolutely. But what does it look like for me to engage the Psalms in their world, in the way that they view and see God? Look, all the scriptures are countercultural, right? The whole Bible is countercultural. But the Psalms, they really take this to a whole new level. I think that the Psalms are the most countercultural book that, that we have in the Bible. Think about it. There's almost no names in the book of Psalms. This is not about humans. These 150 psalms are not about you and me. We learn from the stories of other men and women in Scripture as we read the Bible, but the psalms is not one of those places that you would go for that. There are almost no names in the Bible or in the psalms other than God's name, other than Yahweh. It's completely relational. It is completely about God 
and his children. 100% relational. The entire Bible is there. You can derive and make up the entire rest of Scripture, which is the book of Psalms. Creation is there. The fall of man is there. God choosing his people is there. God walking them through the wilderness is there. God establishing them in the land is in there. All of the pain and the suffering of what prophetic ministry is is in there. The story of Jesus is in there. The death of Christ is in there. The resurrection of Christ is in there. The coming of God's greater chosen people, the church, it's in there. You can construct the entire rest of the Bible out of the book of Psalms. If you just had that and all you ever studied was Psalms, you would know everything else that's in the text. There is a singular focus in the Psalms, and that's God's glory. The singular focus in the Psalms is God's glory. And the concept of God is what really blows it out of the, I I think really what blows us out of the water. Because this is so anti who we are naturally. The Psalms and the Jewish people, they see God as a lover. The Israel, the people of Israel understood being the bride of Christ way more than you and I ever would. Like, God as a lover was their motif. This idea of God reaching down and finding them and choosing them and loving them, it's just, it's everywhere. God, in all of his godness, he's loving, he's just, he's righteous, he's jealous, he's kind, holy, infinitely amazing. Like, this is the God that we see. And the Psalms are completely and totally about him. They're about him in all of this fullness. And it's about this idea that God loves you. He loves you so much. He is passionate for you and passionate for your heart. And he wants to be in love with you and for you to love him the same way that he loves you. And he wants you to receive all of his goodness and all of his life and all of his holiness, all of his righteousness, all of his jealousy for you, all of his justice that he works on your behalf. He he is so into you and about you and concerned with you. He knows every hair on your head. Before you were born, he knew you. He, he, but when you die, he's with you. There is no place that you can go to be separated from his love. It is, it is, this is the God who is active and present and real and passionately engaged with you. That's the God of the Psalms. The God that we've invented in American Christianity is a moral therapeutic deist. These are some big words that we can just pull them apart. Moral. God wants you to be a pretty good person. Just walk up to somebody on the street. What does God want from you? I don't know. Probably not to kill anybody. You know? Right? To, to, to be a good person. Where do you, or, or, are you going to go to heaven when you die? Sure. Why? Well, I'm pretty good. Uh, I never did anything that bad. Okay. Right? So, so we have a God who wants us to be moral. We also have a God that we want to be therapeutic, right? We want him to be our therapist. We want him to sit there, and we want him to listen to us, and we want him to tell us how we can feel better about being us. We want him to give us answers and solutions to our problems. We want to be able to sort of lay out what's going on for him to respond with good, wise counsel as to how it is that I can be happier. And we picture God as a deist, right? Deism simply says that God started the world in action, and then he took his hands off and backed away from it. So now, you know, you got to figure it out. Is there a God? Sure. What did he do? He got all this moving. And then he sort of backed away from it. 
And this is a God that we've invented, right? Moral therapeutic deist. This is Epicureanism, just reinvented. It's, 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 it's so not who the Psalms tell us that God is. The God of the Psalms is a God who is right there, like right here. He is here, so actively engaging his love. Moral therapeutic deism? Shrug your shoulders and try to get by. Right, which is pretty much what most people in the world are trying to do. You just sort of like hold it together, have some fun here and there, do what I'm supposed to do, be a pretty good person, hopefully have some happiness, hopefully not too much pain. And God is distant. But the God of the Psalms is so very, 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 very different. So when the Psalms invite you into themselves, as opposed to you inviting them into your world, this is what we're talking about. It's about understanding a God that's like this. It's about receiving a God that's this, not that. It's about receiving this present, active, loving God. Not this God that just sort of wants you to be a good person, is going to fix all your problems for you, and that you check in with every now and then. No, God is, is, is right here. He is so for you. He's so about you. And he wants you to be so for him and so about him. Right? And in this dynamic love relationship, this is what it means to be the people of God. That's what the Psalms invite you into. Ultimately, above and over everything else, the Psalms invite you to truly possess what it means for you to be a part of the people of God. The people of God think like the Psalms. The people of God pray the Psalms. The people of God sing the Psalms. The people of God speak the Psalms. And I don't mean the text. I mean they speak in these ways, like this, with this concept of God, with this idea about who he is. And in so doing, they unveil for us and open for us doors about God that we could not possibly know without them. Uh, worship team, you can come back up, please. So in thinking about the Psalms and about just how important they are, he, here's my challenge to you, is, is to begin to make the Psalms a regular part of your life as opposed to maybe just something that we step in, into and out of every now and then. Um, to make the Psalms and the reading of the Psalms and the engagement of the Psalms a, a regular part of your relationship with Jesus. And when you read them, to think about God, the way that they give them him to you, the way that they present him to you, as opposed to the way that we go to the text and say, I need to find a God that's like this. Here's my problem. I need to find God that looks like this. Instead, let's just go to the Psalms and let the Psalms be the Psalms. And let the Psalms tell us who God is. And let the Psalms speak to us who God is. And to understand what we're singing when we sing, like all what we're about ready to sing, is all Psalms. So what are these Psalms trying to invite you into with God? What are they trying to tell you about who he is? When you read them through the course of this week or in, in, in your life, instead of looking for them to enter your world, what does it mean for you to step into what they're saying? 
and to think about it in the deep, rich, full ways that God presents himself to us in and through them. The Psalms are the worship book of the nation of Israel, a nation that understands God as passionate, present, active lover of who they are. God is the same thing for you. The nation of Israel understood God to be so holy and righteous and just and magnificent and present and with us and tender and jealous for us. That God is the same way toward you. Let these things in. Let them affect you. Let them shift your emotions and shift your thought. Receive what it is that God gives to you through them. God, thank you for your psalms. These songs of you that draw us into you deeply and who you are. God, thank you for the psalm writer. Thank you for David. Thank you for his heart after you. We sing your psalms now, God. We sing your beauty. We sing your goodness. We sing your righteousness. We sing your life. We sing your love. We worship you. Thank you, God. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in her midst. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage. The kingdoms totter. He utters his voice and the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. God, we thank you for all that you are. And we thank you for drawing us into you. Thank you for revealing the depths of who you are to us. In these, your psalms. God, keep your songbook close at hand in our hearts, God, in our minds, before our eyes, in our ears, in our earbuds, through our car speakers. God, keep our psalms, before, keep your psalms before us. I pray that we would know them and praise you through them and worship you and engage you. Thank you for the holy other God that you are. We bless you. And so today, Cornerstone, my friends, God is with you. The God of Jacob is your fortress. Amen. Amen.
Thanks for being here today. Go with God.